Shalom and thank you for clicking to listen to one of our audio messages. At Tikvat David, we are building a Yeshua-centered Judaism for Israel and the nations. We hope that this message will encourage, inform, and inspire you to follow Yeshua and to walk in the pathways of Torah. Enjoy. Well, as the director of outreach for First Fruit Design, I frequently attend conferences to build relationships with Christian leaders. And at these events, I frequently get into theological conversations, which almost always lead to Paul at some point. A common question I like to ask is, how would you describe Paul's rule in all the churches? And what do you think of it? Actually, I asked this question to a pastor last week at a conference that I was attending uh, representing First Fruit Design. And he gave me an answer that I receive from most of the leaders that I speak to at these conferences. And keep in mind that <clears throat> most of the leaders I speak to at these conferences have advanced theological and Bible degrees. And so when I asked the, that, that question, how would you describe Paul's rule in all the churches, uh, it's unusual for the other person to know what I'm referring referring to, much less to have given Paul's rule much thought. Uh, typically, answers that I receive when I say, what do you think was Paul's rule in, on the churches, in all the churches? I usually see receive answers like, well, I think Paul's rule was to be all things to all men, to save some of them. And of course, that's with reference to 1 Corinthians 9. Or perhaps some will say Paul's rule was to count everything as loss in order to gain Christ, with reference to Philippians 3. So look, these Pauline thoughts, as we know, are very, very important, but they are not what Paul expressed as his rule in all the churches. The question about Paul's rule is not aimed at trying to draw out anyone's opinion of what they think serves uh, as Paul's central idea or his primary focus. Rather, I'm actually referring to a specific statement that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 through 20, and I'm going to read the text and then discuss it a little bit. So there, Paul says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God, each one, should remain in the condition in which he was called. So that's 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 through 20. Now, in my opinion, this text that I just read is one of the most underemphasized texts in the Bible, and certainly in the letters of Paul. Paul's language here is unique, and it's really the only time that he explicitly mentions his rule. So New Testament scholar uh, from Moody uh, Bible Institute Brian Tucker says the following. He says, quote, the fact that Paul establishes a rule on this topic indicates that it's not a matter of indifference for him, but one of fundamental importance. So according to Paul, this fundamentally important rule uh, is something that applies to Yeshua's disciples among all the churches. But of course, the big question is, what did Paul mean to establish by this rule? And what are the implications for Paul's rule uh, both then and now. Well, part of the challenge with interpreting this text is the seeming contradiction between verse 19 and 20 in 1 Corinthians 7. On the one hand, Paul says that, uh, that circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Here, 
uh, circumcision and uncircumcision are used as substitute words for Jewish and Gentile social identities, respectively. So at face value, this verse seems to indicate that Paul is collapsing the value of previous social identities as he says that circumcision and uncircumcision count for nothing. But then in verse 20, he continues that each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. So that sounds like an affirmation of previous social identity. So which is it? Is Paul affirming or denying the ongoing role of social identities within the ecclesia, which we translate as church? Well, commenting on Paul's rule in 1 Corinthians 7, N.T. Wright, the eminent uh, scholar says, New Testament scholar says, Paul does not say, in other words, what some dearly wish he had said, namely that Jews and Gentiles should stick to their respective ways of life. So, okay, according to N.T. Wright, he understands Paul to be relativizing, minimizing, or even negating the importance of previous social identities within the ecclesia. Uh, uh, Well-known and um, excellent New Testament scholar John Barclay agrees with Wright's thinking when he says that Paul declares that the ethnic distinctions between Jew and Gentile, which was foundational to Paul's ancestral traditions, these have been dissolved by the incongruous gift of Christ. Now, I love Barclay's, uh, his, his emphasis uh, in that statement and also in his book um, uh, called Paul and the Gift. Uh, I loved his, his, his imagery of, of the gift of Christ. But he's saying that, again, ethnic distinctions have been dissolved because of the work of Yeshua. Now, the viewpoints of N.T. Wright and John Barclay are very common among Pauline interpreters. In fact, I would say that their viewpoints are standard, prevailing, historic, as far as how this text and this concept of you know, continue, the continuing role of Jewish and Gentile social identities within the church Um, they're pretty much just expressing standard stuff. So in trying to discern the meaning of Paul's rule in 1 Corinthians 7, Galatians 3 verse 28 is often referenced and brought into the conversation, and with good reason. There is a certain reading of Galatians 3.28, I'd say the common reading, uh, that that presents um, prior social identities as having no longer any substantial value in the ecclesia. So in Galatians 3, 20, 28, Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then commenting on that text, Galatians 3, 28, the popular ESV study Bible says, the fact that the Mosaic law has been left behind in the old age means that in the new creation, this, the distinction between Jew and Gentile is broken down. How about James Dunn, who's another excellent, prominent, prolific New Testament scholar, he reflects the dominant viewpoint in Galatians 3.28 as well, wherein he says neither Jew nor Greek means a oneness of Jew and Gentile in faith without the laws interposing between them to mark them off as distinct from each other. So again, James Dunn is saying Jew and Gentile are not distinct from each other in his comment on Galatians 3.28, which came out of his Uh, commentary on the book of Galatians. So you can see pretty clearly that Galatians 3.28 and 1 Corinthians 7, these texts are related, talking about prior social identities. And some of the best scholars that are out there seem to be in agreement that these verses are saying that 
the distinction between Jew and Gentile because of the work of Yeshua, these distinctions no longer exist. But here's a question. Can there be oneness and distinction at the same time? Are these categories mutually exclusive as these commentators seem to suggest? Well, uh, I would say that oneness is not sameness, which is a way of resolving this, uh, this, uh, this, this issue here of oneness and distinction. So Daniel Lancaster, who's my colleague with First Fruit Design, his reading of Paul, and specifically Galatians 3.28, is that, quote, in Messiah, Jew and Gentile are one, but not the same. So Daniel's reading of Galatians 3.28 is that it doesn't have to do with ongoing social distinctions in the ecclesia. Rather, Paul is emphasizing that both Jews and Gentiles have equal access to God's gift in Yeshua. So Lancaster says this, quote, Jews, Gentiles, men, women, slaves, and freemen have the same access to salvation through the same Messiah, but that does not eliminate our distinct identities and roles. In other words, the fact that Jews and Gentiles received God's gift of mercy in Jesus on equal terms does not eliminate diversity within the ecclesia. So in Galatians 3.28, I would say that Paul is not obliterating the difference between Jews and Gentiles any more than he is removing the differences between men and women. Rather, Paul is emphasizing that God is at work in both groups, and we are one in the sense that we have equal access to God's mercy in Messiah as Jews and as Gentiles. And so this equality of access to relationship with God does not negate prior social identities. Now, at this point in the conversation, there are some interpreters, I would say many, who will acknowledge that Galatians 3.28 does not mean that all differences are put aside in Christ. However, the consensus view is that Jewish and Gentile identities no longer have any significance beyond serving as reminders of ethnic backgrounds. This is so important. In other words, according to some, some, some will, will not go so far as some of these statements I've just read. They'll say, okay, yeah, Jewish and Gentile identity, it, it, it's still there. It's not, it's not wiped away in Christ. However, frequently, if you dig a little bit further in, you know, below the surface, you'll see that there's no real spiritual or kingdom significance to these Jewish and Gentile identities. And these differences certainly do not include distinct callings or responsibilities that involve tangible expressions. So to clarify this further, there are many interpreter, interpreters who affirm the ongoing significance of Jewish identity. However, these same interpreters would say that Jewish identity no longer includes distinctive expressions such as circumcision for males, keeping uh, you know, the, the laws of kashrut, keeping kosher, and observing the Sabbath. So the question then becomes, what then actually defines or designates the reality of a group remaining within their calling? What does it look like for a Jew to remain as a Jew? What does it look like for a Gentile to remain as a Gentile? I would say my, my experience has been in both research as well as just on the streets, talking to people, wherever it may be, there's typically no substantial answer to this question. If one denies that distinction is good, necessary, and real within the kingdom of God. So my understanding of Paul's rule in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 through 20, is that he affirms that all have equal access to the gift of God in Yeshua, yet diversity remains within the kingdom and within the ecclesia. 
When Paul says circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, he's communicating that both Jews and Gentiles can be justified in Christ as either Jews or Gentiles. Both Jewish and Gentile identities mattered greatly to Paul, though. Why? Because this harmonizes with the reality that God, that the God of Israel is not just the God of the Jews, but he's the God of the Gentiles also. And Paul expresses this powerfully in Romans 3, verses 29 and 30, where he says, Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So in Paul's mind, the massive turning of the Gentiles from their idols to the God of Israel was an indication that the Messianic time clock had started. And that's why the distinctiveness of both Israel and the nations must be upheld. You have to have nations worshiping as nations in order for it to be the kingdom because God is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the God of the nations, not just the God of Israel. If he was just the God of Israel, then it would mean that all Gentiles need to become Jews. But he's not just the God of Israel. And so therefore, the uniqueness of the nations, the diversity of the nations must be protected as well as the uniqueness of Israel and the Jewish people. So Christian theologian Kendall Solon says, quote, the distinction between Jew and Gentile being intrinsic to God's work as consummator of creation is not erased, but realized in a new way in the sphere of the church. The church concerns the Jew as a Jew and the Gentile as a Gentile, not only initially or for the period of a few generations, but essentially and at all times. End of quote from Kendall Solon. So, of course, this raises the question, if distinction between Jew and Gentile under the headship of Yeshua is a good and necessary reality, what does that look like? What is it that distinguishes Jews and Gentiles in the ecclesia? Well, that's a tough question uh, as far as the details, but... Me and my colleagues at First Fruits of Zion, uh, especially Daniel Lancaster and Aaron Eby, have, have sort of developed a theological and a, a, a sort of an emerging theological viewpoint that we call distinction theology. So distinction theology is a viewpoint which articulates the importance of godly distinction within the ecclesia and really helps to define what that looks like in, looks like in real life. And so this viewpoint is largely based on Paul's rule in 1 Corinthians 7, which affirms that social diversity remains within the ecclesia. So Daniel puts it this way. He says, quote, Paul himself made a clear line of distinction between Jewish and Gentile believers. And keep in mind, whenever we're saying distinction in these conversations, we're not talking about a hierarchy. We're just talking about diversity. We're talking about difference. We're talking about many colors, which is a beautiful thing. So continuing, Daniel says, in his worldview, in Paul's worldview, Jewish believers are obligated to the covenant responsibilities incumbent upon them. Gentiles are also obligated to God's Torah, but not to those particular aspects of it which define a person as Jewish, such as circumcision, at least circumcision on the eighth day for baby boys. Now, some have labeled Lancaster's emphasis on distinction as discriminatory. But there's a big difference between distinction and discrimination. William S. Campbell says, quote, This is what I think Paul intends us to hear. Not that God cannot see or does not recognize diversity in peoples, which seems rather strange, but rather that Paul refuses to discriminate against certain people in a certain category because they differ in some respects from others. End of quote 
from William S. Campbell. So I think the beauty of distinction theology is that it allows for a rich diversity of expressions, thus reflecting the broadness of God's kingdom. Messianic Jewish scholar Dr. Stuart Dowerman refers to this as a flowering of identities. I think Dr. Dowerman's right. The kingdom of God is not only about making room for diverse identities, but protecting and encouraging diversity. Again, Daniel Lancaster says, quote, Not everyone is alike, and not every community of Yeshua is alike. There is room for vast diversity. Now, one of the primary ways the distinction is concretely expressed in the kingdom is respecting the fact that not all the commandments in the Torah apply to all people. So in his rule for all the churches, Paul emphasizes that both Jews and Gentiles must keep the commandments of God in 1 Corinthians 7, 19. But if distinction is to be maintained, then there must be some differentiation within the Torah itself. So Brian Tucker says, quote, Thus, for Jewish Christ followers, they are to remain Torah observant, while non-Jewish Christ followers follow purity regulations designed for sojourners who lived among Israel. End of quote from Brian Tucker. So, the following summary statement from First Fruit to Zion, or at least this is an excerpt, I think can help to guide our understanding uh, of the trajectory that Torah observance should take for Messianic Jews and Messianic Gentiles. Quote, Distinction between Jews and Gentiles in their respective roles, obligations, prerogatives, and privileges is a hallmark of distinction theology. Distinction theology maintains a rigid distinction between Jewish and Gentile identity and praxis. Gentile disciples are not asked to undertake Torah observance except for those commandments that specifically pertain to them. Jewish disciples are expected to observe the whole Torah as a matter of covenant fidelity. End of quote. So more will be said about both Jewish and Gentile identity in subsequent uh, parts of this series. But for now, I want to emphasize the point that in the kingdom of God, we can't only tolerate and accept the other. We must protect and encourage and celebrate the other being the other because God is not just the God of the Jews, but of the Gentiles also. Tragically, Paul's rule, which protects the rich diversity of the kingdom, has been undermined by interpretations of Paul, which obscure the beauty of distinction and difference within Abraham's family. William S. Campbell says again, quote, What Paul opposes is not difference, but boasting in difference. Boasting in the asymmetry of difference is ruled out, both because of the concern for the other in Christ and the concern for unity in Christ. Paul's rule in 1 Corinthians 7 is designed to protect our differences and our unity. So next, we're going to look at some specifics regarding how Paul's Jews and Paul's Gentiles live distinct, distinctly while maintaining unity under the headship of Yeshua. So next, we'll be looking at Paul's Jews. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to this audio message from Tikvat David Messianic Synagogue. We would love to get to meet you in person sometime at the synagogue, so come join us for Shabbat or one of the holidays. Also, you can join us in building Messianic Judaism, whether you live in the Atlanta area or far away, by financially contributing to our synagogue. You can learn about the options for giving under the Donate tab at tikvatdavid.org. At Tikvat David, we would love to have you stand with us as we are building a Yeshua-centered Judaism for Israel and the nations. Shalom.